Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and New Books in History. Today, we're on the podcast channel, New Books in Eastern European Studies. And I'm Stephen Siegel, your host, coming back to you again today from San Diego, California. We're pleased today to welcome Professor Anita Kurame, who is an Associate Professor of History at Bryn Mawr College. She received her doctorate degree in history from Rutgers and specializes in modern European history with an emphasis on East Central Europe. Professor Kurame's main research interests include the history of sexuality, women's and gender history, conservatism and the politics of the far right, human rights, and the history of sports. Today we'll be talking with her about her new book called Queer Budapest, 1873 to 1961, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020. This is a book that examines the history of Hungarian politics of non-normative sexualities from the late 19th century to the present. Professor Kurame is an expert, has published articles in addition to the book on Hungarian gay and lesbian history in journals such as Sexualities and Eastern European politics and societies. Um, thanks for joining us today on the podcast, Anita. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So um, I love this book in, in a lot of different ways. Um, as someone who, who's also worked with the University of Chicago Press and um, knows about the late editor, Doug Mitchell, and all the wonderful books that uh, he had and sponsored, um, I want to start with a question which. Um, I sometimes ask, but don't always ask, and that's about you, because I know you have had an unusual career and came into academe um, in, in, let's say, atypical ways. Could you tell us about that a little bit? Um, sure, I would be happy to. Um, so I grew up in Hungary, um, still under state socialism, um, where you know the state kind of facilitated people's um, sporting activities. And if you were good at something that um, they, they provided you with, um, you know, in my case, a racket and a team. Um, and I came to tennis um, actually at the time when my parents were out in here in the U.S., um, but the state wouldn't let the whole family to come. So actually I was apart from my parents, but in um, return, I started uh, playing tennis and it turned out I was pretty good at it. So that was at age eight. And by the time I was 14, I was on the national team and then I became a professional tennis player. But with a twist that um, I had an Australian coach in Australia. So I started traveling uh, pretty extensively and actually stopped going to school. So I didn't have the um, usual experience of high school and the dramas that I hear many Americans had um, in high school. But so I, I traveled with tennis and, you know, I stayed at the time, the kind of common practice that you would stay with family. So I had the opportunity to live 
um, and extensively, as, uh, for instance, in Japan, where I would, in the countryside, actually stay with a Japanese family. And then sub- um, subsequently, I lived in Australia. And I was just blown away by the gender dynamics of different cultures coming from Eastern Europe, where, you know, there was formal gender equality, but not um, a whole lot of gender equality, for instance, in the household. Then I was, you know, um, transported um, to Japan, where I was just floored by what I perceived the lack of respect towards women and the deference that uh, women had to show towards men. And I went to Australia and my host family you know, men were doing dishes and cooked. And so I became interested in um, politics of gender early on. And then I arrived to UC Berkeley with a um, sports scholarship uh, for tennis. Um, I had the opportunity to start thinking about these issues um, through the lens of history and, uh, you know, sociology. So I became interested in um, politics of gender early on. And then um, also uh, had to do with, and a huge part, of course, had to deal with my own sexuality, um, discovering that I was different, that I was gay. But a whole, um, you know, another uh, part of, uh, on on, on kind of my intellectual development, I'm still very interested in terms of queerness in sports, but I, I table that for now. Um, that's something that I'm, I'm going to think about it in perhaps in my next project. But in terms of thinking about hunger specifically, um, you know, growing up, the only time I saw or heard about homosexuality, I still vividly remember, I must have been seven. And on state television, there was these two homosexual adolescents who basically had their faces um, covered in a way to protect their identity. Um, and it was just a horrible experience uh, at the time. And also think, you know, in terms of the pathologization and medicalization of, of homosexuality, um, there was not a lot of information for me to, to draw on. Conversely, when I actually started thinking about, could there be homosexuals in the past? Could there be, where are the homosexuals in Hungary? Um, I started looking and there was absolutely nothing in even popular or academic literature. And then one day I was literally walking down in Budapest, uh, the picturesque Budapest and and across from the National Gallery, um, there are these antique bookstores. And that's something that, um, you know, in Europe you have, um, I think still abundance of, as opposed to, I think in the US where a lot of things are moving online. But so I, I went into the store and totally by accident picked up this book that had a very interesting title. Um, it was, it was um, called uh, Tragedies of, of, of Sexual Life. And I started reading um, through the book and it's literally in five page into this um, physician's uh, description of Budapest, it basically set, it goes to say, Budapest has the first homosexual registry in the world. There are over 5,000 registered homosexuals in Budapest alone. And I was just like, wait a second, (laughs) what is going on? Um, So this was, you know, this was um, a moment of discovery where as already a, a, 
a PhD student in history, not definitely knowing what I wanted to write on, other than it had to be something about gender politics in in East Central Europe. This was such an amazing jam that I I felt like my fate was um, sealed. I knew this is the the route that I wanted to um, go down and, and think about the history of, of homosexuality and homosexuals in Hungary. Yeah, there's so much that I want to ask you about. And um, I really don't know where to start after that between Australia and Japan and the US and, um, and Budapest. But one of the fascinating parts I find in your LGBTQ history is this idea that that a lot of people have the notion that somehow LGBTQ history begins much later in the 1970s and 1980s. But as you say, you scoured these publications and archives. Um, I remember in Budapest walking down Andrashi Ud and, and going to Academia Kiado and looking for maps for my own research project. So it, it must have been an absolute revelation for you to start um, going through the sources. Could you tell us um, and our listeners about the sources that you found, including this fascinating registry? Yes. So I think, you know, part of the reason and difficulties of the so-called recovering LGBTQ or like, you know, the queer past is precisely has to do with the sources and and the politics of the archives, right? Like so much of particularly even in, you know, in, in, in Europe, um, everything it's the bureaucracy is pretty big, and in terms of archives, there's like a logic and an established way of doing um, preservation, right? And so, of course, queer lives and queer memories um, do not make it into official archives unless they are pathologized and medicalized um, and criminalized. Which, in case I found, of course, that. Um, sex between men were was indeed criminalized in in Hungary um since 18, 1878 till 1961 but um women um sex between women and sexual acts between women was not hence again in terms of talking about sources it was much more difficult to find um uh, sources on on lesbian and um queer women in the past um, and again, it was a great revelation. And thanks to basically the digitization of, of historical newspapers that, that I came about the, you know, a huge lesbian scandal of the 1920s between these, you know, one of the greatest Hungarian writers, Cecil Tormai, um, and an aristocratic um, woman who were actually sued and, um, and, and basically put on trial by uh, the husband of, of the aristocratic woman, Eduardina Pallavicini, um, alleging that the two women uh, were sexually involved. Um, so again, in terms of sources, this was one of those, an, another aha moment where I found um, an amazing a treasure uh, that, that otherwise would have been really, really difficult to find since um, Queer voices don't tend to leave um, and had not left a lot of um, a lot of sources behind. So, in terms of my sources, uh, more generally, I went on uh, the more institutional route. Since male homosexual acts were were criminalized, I actually 
hand by hand went through the indexes of the Budapest Criminal Court. It took me six months to basically wow. find the top every single legal case where um, paragraph 241 or 242, those were the paragraphs that criminalized male homosexual acts, um, were, were, were basically, there were charge, charges. And then I tried to find the documents uh, ex- explaining and detailing the cases. And unfortunately, many of these documents um, were destroyed in World War II and, and were imp- uh, not fully um, there, but there, there was one of the ways in which I could still uh, do my due diligence and really try to recreate um, actually the, the, you know, the legal um, experience of, of um, men who had sex with men or who were alleged having sex with men. In addition, I, I um, relied on um, two of the most famous investigative journalists um, of, of the early 20th century who published a number of books. They had a Sinful Budapest series, was really a, truly a, a bestsellers uh, of the day, um, and who actually went not only slumming, so to speak, in the really fast growing Budapest and, you know, documented the, the so-called, you know, the underworld. But specifically speaking, they actually wrote a, um, a short book on what they call the Knights of um, Sick Love. That they, that's yeah. how they referred so, to homosexual men. Sorry, could we, could we talk about them Cornel, Cornel Tabari and Vladimir Sekely a, a little bit. So who, who, were, who were they and how did they come to be so famous in their investigation? So they, um, they both were journalists. Um, and in addition, um, Vladimir Sekely was also uh, w- worked for the police and, and actually led the, um, the PR uh, section of, of the police, which was which is, a, again, a novel institution. This is, again, the turn of the 20th century. The, the, you know, the penny press is booming. More people are reading. So the police also recognizes that they are in need of educating the public, but also uh, portraying a, a more favorable um, picture of the police themselves. And Vladimir Seker was in charge of that. And, but, uh, and uh, Tabori was just an already acclaimed journalist who was very interested in social issues. Um, and so they, they teamed up um, and using the police resources um, and, you know, the tips that the police could get them, they actually covered various crimes, um, but with the eye towards profit, right? And they quickly discovered mm. that, um, that actually um, sex sells papers and thinking about, you know, prostitutes thinking about um, homosexuals were not only um, important in, in an era where the people try to understand the bourgeois, I mean, the bourgeoning um, sexual world of, of Budapest and these large capitals, but also that they actually uh, could profit from, from um, writing about these issues. Yeah, and Seke was a member of the police, wasn't he? Or he, at least he was yeah. very closely affiliated with the police. So how how did yeah. how did that work? So again, it, it was a different. It's from a historical uh, point of view, it was a different era where where um, actually the police and and journalists could um, 
foresee and understand that they have a common cause, which is um, to make, in this case, Budapest a more livable and safer, safer city. So it, that meant that actually Seke again was employed as a former journalist, but employed by the police in order to in order to work um, on the image of the police to educate the public, but also provide a more um, more fact based picture of the the basically the crime statistics and crime scene of of Budapest, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I'd like actually to ask from there about the organization of your book into mm-hmm. particular timeframes or eras. So yeah. um, for, for those of our listeners who, who might know, not know a lot about the um, temporality or, or let's say the signposts of Hungarian history, how did you decide to organize and arrange, arrange the book into period? I mean, as you know, um, historians tend to do, chronology plays an important, um, important role. And in fact, it is the most important organizing factor in the sense that Hungary went through a tumultuous history in terms of being part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy until the end of World War I, then having the um, second you know, communist um, republic after, after the, the Soviet Union. Um, and, and then of course we have an interwar, um, authoritarian regime until World War II, um, following with, following with, um, again, a, a fascist regime that was as just brief as, as the communist, um, dictatorship after World War One. But then of course, um, Hungary experiences, um, uh, along with with the rest of the Eastern Bloc, becomes part of the the Soviet sphere of influence and and um, has a, a, a communist party until 1989. So I kept the political framing of um, the book uh, as as uh, a guiding principle, but my my goal was basically to show that if you look at these uh, distinctly uh, distinct political regimes, if you look at these regimes through the lens of um, sexuality, you actually get a very different picture um, than you would normally get in political narratives, which of course stress um, stress drastic different policies and and just you know different nature of, uh, of th- the different nature of these these um, regimes and periods. Yeah. So I I mean I, I love how you draw these very uncanny parallels between the eras um, and, and the representation of queerness. There, I think, are a lot of surprises. Um, I got this impression, especially um, in reading about, let's say, official policy um, toward homosexuality, the stigmatization and the criminalization and the medicalization of it. So in comparing the different governments, let's say the Belakun regime or the Hungarian Soviet Republic with, let's say, the Horti regime, what were some of the surprising findings um, that you had as you went through uh, the popular history, social history, official archives, and so on? Yes. I mean, so it's, it's each of the chapters, I think, offered some sort of paradox in a sense that we have our assumptions about, say, a liberal 
regime in you know that that predates um, the Belakun regime, where um, uh, these investigative journalists operate. The liberal regime sets up the first homosexual registry. It's claimed in in Europe, right? So in right. Other words, you so the paradox was there. Basically, in order to become a modern metropolis, the police wanted to um, follow existing models of crime registry, and they actually created also a registry for homosexuals, which was a very novel concept of thinking about basically an identity based on who you were sleeping with, right, at the turn of the century as a category. So um, in this sense, in terms of the Bela Kun regime, the, the communist, you know, the Soviet Republic in 19... 19- 19 was also uh, a paradox in a sense that they actually decriminalized homosexuality, so which was incredibly early if you're thinking about in the, in the decriminalization history of, of, of homosexual acts in the world. Um, at the same time, they also believed that rather than medic- as a medical pathology, they, by embracing psychoanalysis and psycho- psychology as these novel um, ways of thinking about crime, they believed that homosexuality was in effect transcendent. So it was just had to do with basically a trauma from your past. And if Mm. um, you rehabilitated these, um, what they called, you know, basically homosexuals or, or sexual abnormals, you would arrive to a perfectly healthy heterosexual society. So again, the paradox it was for me is that they truly believed in, in truly believing the transformation of people into socialist citizens or communist citizens. They also believed that homosexuality um, would just be eradicated. Yeah. Essentially, that would be giving absolutely no space for actual homosexual identity in their imagined society, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I wanted to ask you, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but. Before we move to the authoritarian interwar regime under Horthy, the, the chapter that you have on "quote unquote" rehabilitating sexual abnormals um, in the Hungarian Soviet Republic, could, could you tell us what what sort of sources you're relying on there? Because I, I'm fascinated by your part on the experimental criminal department. What what was that, and how how did that, at least in its understanding of justice and psychoanalysis? Um, define homosexuality. Yeah, so just very quickly, to circling back to sources, and I am and forever in debt to the archivist who I met in this case at um, the, the Budapest archives, um, who, that the Budapest city archives, who basically having me spent, you know, six months going through the judicial records, they were like, okay, you might want to look, take a look at this, these records. And in many other archives, yeah. as, you know, as historians know, you, you need the graces of, of the archivists to actually aware of what is there behind the indexes that you get to see. <laughs> um, so in, in short, they gave me this base, basically file on the exper- criminal experimental um, criminology department of 1919. And so my exposure and, um, you know, my, um, um, basically source base comes from, from the, uh, a, a, a file that was kept on the criminology department's, uh, daily activities. I mean, they, it had, it was all about, um, 
their their existence, their establishment, and some of their cases that that they that they took on um, during the brief life of you know 133 days of um, communist dictatorship. And then in in augmenting that, then I also looked through the communist um, uh, basically the um, communist newspapers and uh, and the official communist uh, newspaper at the time that. That uh, that I had to go through every you know every day, and I read those, and I also found um, you know crucial importance of uh, relating to basically the decriminalization of homosexuality, and also to the the kind of the conceptual um, framing of this uh, experimental criminology department, and more generally the uh, communist justice for the future. And would you describe the Hungarian communists' attitude toward sex differently from the Bolsheviks? I, I mean, because the, there was this Bolshevik code, right, right, on marriage and the family and guardianship. I think it was 19 or 1919. I think it was 19. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how, I mean, how did it work in Budapest during those 133 days? Was it different? Because there, there was a lot of you know, psychoanalysis that, that comes out of the Central European tradition, right? Right. I would say that, well, um, you know, and again, there's been, Dan Healy, there's been a lot of uh, book, a lot of books written on, on, on the Soviet experiment and, you know, in the 20s kind of um, more positive framing of, of sex and sexuality. I mean, it's important that 133 days is is not a long time, so I could be, we can't really think about implementation of ideas. But in terms of ideas, I would I would think about the Hungarian case slightly different, precisely because I think they had a longer history and um, of psychoanalysis and also um, a, a willingness um, on the on the political front. So on the actually the the Communist Party's front to truly embrace psychoanalysis, uh, not just to, um, tolerate it, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess beyond that, you know, you mentioned the scandal, um, of, of one of Hungary's most famous writers. There, there are all sorts of double standards, um, which apply to, um, to gay men and to lesbians differently. So, um, could you talk a little bit about that, especially as the as the scandals break out? I, I mean, I, I see more scandals after the Kuhn regime and into the interwar period, but um, maybe yeah. correct correct me if I'm wrong. Scandals yeah. have been part of, and I, I think again, in terms of going back to um, you know the mass press and and early 20th century, I think scandals became and particularly around sex um became a way to talk about sex but also sell papers um but in terms of the largest scandal so scandals have were become uh were kind of part of uh i think particularly urban histories of of uh of central europe and budapest at this time but the largest scandal that um i discovered um had to do with two women um, in 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 the twenties, which was of course already um, the Horthy regime, which of course was uh, you know a total rejection of of the liberal and communist regimes that that um, that came before. So it was something that um, really rocked um, 
draft yeah. pick because it was also had to do with women, which which and respectable women, which um, you know it, they were used to reading about men in terms of sexual scandals and and who they seen as irrespectable women. But in this case, both of the kind of the the people involved were all respectable. Right. And who, and who, who were they again? So Cecile Tormay and, which, you know, and, and Eduardina Palavicini, which the two, literally two of the leaders of the new conservative women's movements who, uh, according to some analysis, you know, had close to a million members uh, by the late 1920s. So these were incredibly visible public figures um, who also, you know, stood and, and, um, for the, the conservative regime, which, which advocated, of course, um, strong family values, what we would consider, you know, absolutely heteronormative um, sexual behavior. Um, and, and so, you know, the hypocrisy couldn't have been um, larger and the stakes couldn't have been higher, uh, both for the regimes and for, for these women themselves, even if um, Tormai herself, who uh, was also the editor of the most um, well-known, um, actually intellectual journal of of the new conservative right. Um, was single, right? But but mm-hmm, right. she still was, um, you know, the the voice of the conservative regime on on matters of women and family. Yeah, and I mean, could you draw some larger comparisons with, say, Vienna or Berlin or Paris in? In this period, because I, one of your larger arguments is is also about modernity, and this is a chapter in Hungarian modernity. So um, I'm thinking more specifically about cases of divorce or libel or libel um, right. in the 1920s. I mean, how how does it kind of play out, not just in Budapest, but also in in a larger European? I think you know there are absolutely European trends that um, that you know since the late most places now increasingly uh, marriage is secular, right? And so you can actually file for divorce, um, which was you know it's only became the case in the late nineteenth century where you have a more separation of state and church. But importantly, even if say in Budapest, right, it's a conservative um, government versus Berlin and um, Vienna, you know, at least in the twenties, are are in the opposite camp. They have um, the Weimar Republic and also social democrats, right, in in, in power um, in Vienna. With that said, following World War One, um, in each of these um, places, the idea of um, the family as a normalizing agent and the importance of of producing more babies for your future nation, mm, right. Uh, the carnage of World War One is imperative, um, but it's of course in Hungary it's it's also an added pressure with this Christian conservative. So it's it's you know in a sense it's your your mission in life is also sanctified by God. Um, so in and and so it's it's even more um, of a scandal when you have these women who stand and propagate this idea. Which is let's not kid ourselves. It remains an idea. Women always worked, and even aristocratic women after um, after World War One and, and middle class women um, continue to have public roles. But nevertheless, um, and in fact, Tormai, the, the one of the 
figures, pioneers uh, women entering university uh, in in larger numbers. So I think you know it's it's we have to differentiate between the rhetoric of of this you know idea of women's place that is at home and child rearing and education versus actually the reality that women were gaining ground in the professional world regardless. But nevertheless, most people prescribe to these ideas at least. And then you have at the same time this massive um, scandal that that rocks this image of these women who seen as un- incredibly hypocritical um, in the eyes of many by essentially alleging, uh, allegedly um, having a, a sexual relation uh, relationship while one of them is, is, is still married. Yeah. And, and was it, would you say, possible to have a public same-sex relationship? Um, it's different for queer men. Um, it's different for lesbians. But was it possible in interwar Hungary under the Horthy regime? Um, how active was the police, let's say, in, in, in going after people public in the 1920s? I think, again, like one of the um, important findings of, of my research had to do with the fact that, of course, you had um, the rhetoric and then you had also actual laws and, and the Horthy regime um, did pass very serious laws that. Um, basically pushed uh, prostitution underground, uh, female prostitution, and also um, really policed public morality, you know, public sexual acts in public to a much greater degree than any of the regimes prior. Um, But what is important and what I found that in actuality, thanks to the, the culture, which again, believed that Men were inherently sexual and um, respectable. Women um, had no sexual drive. Um, disproportionately uh, focused on the poli- public policing of, of women, and mm, interesting. Yeah, and in, and in turn, um, I argue and I saw that actually men not only could um, carry on with their um, their sexual um, relations with with various um, women and and not fulfilling this idea of you know the monogamous sexual um, relationship that was prescribed by the regime, but also in terms of particularly uh, queer men, um, as long as they had the privilege and it was a privilege to have access to to the private sphere, they, the the regime basically closed their eyes towards uh, homosexual men who basically had consensual relationships at home. Mm. And did that apply to prostitutes as well? Because there, there was also a kind of registry of, so male, it, of, male, of male prostitutes. So the other important idea is that, of course, um, the Horty regime differentiated between what I call um, respectful um, and um, homosexuals, who again, were otherwise full members of the community um, who could have homosexual relations in, again, consensual homosexual relations in, in, in private versus men who either sold themselves in, in public or men who basically um, had s- sex with men in, in public, thereby um, challenging the, the public morality. 
so the actual the Horthy regime put extra resources extra resources to eradicate the growing um, market of, of of male homosexual prostitution, which after World War One um, really became an established um, scene of of Budapest, along with all the other major cities in in Europe. But the Horthy regime stepped up its prosecution of of male um, prostitution uh, at the same time as also uh, facilitated what I would argue uh, uh, the growth of of a private homosexual scene, particularly for men. Yeah. And and I guess, uh, I mean, I've asked you a lot of questions about the Horty regime, largely because it, it has ex- experienced this, uh, to my mind, strange rehabilitation, um, not just since Orban in 20, 2010, but Fides and Jobbik um, love this period. I, I write about the Trianon um, treaty in my own work on geography and cartography. Um, and and I, I think it makes it a, an, un, an uneasy alliance and an unlikely alliance, as you argue. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the transition into both fascism with its eugenics and communism um, up until the end of your book in 1961, when we finally get the decriminalization of homosexuality? So what, what happens in Hungary in the, in, the, in the history of queer Budapest under both fascism? So this tolerance that actually describes the, the Horthy regime in terms of particularly um, male sexual, certain male sexual practices, um, and again, an excuse for um, tolerating uh, male sexuality uh, is, is in many ways upheld by um, the conservatives who just have this belief that as long as we don't talk about sex and particularly homosexuality, um, in large forums, it's not going to spread, right? They all, at this point, right. believe sexuality is fluid, and they really much worry that if we talk about um, homosexuality, it could affect young young men, particularly um, who are susceptible to to ideas, right? And so there's also a, a constant threat of of um, masculinity in, 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 is, is, as a fragile being, and we need to make sure that it's um, that it's it's regarded in the right way. At the same time, of course, they're also very good at looking away if they're minor infractions, infractions that happen, such as you know, men have, having sex with men, um, as as something that it's not constitutional. It doesn't define define you as a as a homosexual um, if you have sex with men, particularly after, of course, the experience of World War One, which was understood as a as a largely um, Homo um, normative, normative space that actually men experience and seen uh, homosexual acts in to the to the extent that it was unheard and unseen in history before. But so moving forward, um, it has to do with really the the Nazi influence and also the, you know eugenic ideas uh, being incorporated with um, to a much greater degree. Once Hungary um, enters the war in 1941, and it has to do with this idea that um, homosexuality now is can actually, you know, be really um, deteriorating in terms of the, the armed forces as well as it can be seen as as a biological 
essentially weapon that could destroy destroy the nation from within. Um, and and so this these ideas, which of course um, you could see um, that had been circulating in in eugenic circles prior, even in Hungary, but you see it in of course being um, adapted by 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 the Nazis um, by by the mid thirties become reality when really Nazi friendly um, government officials uh, come come to be in in really important forces. And so you see how you have a essentially um, a hardening of of the police and of the authorities um, in terms of their treatment of of homosexuals on the registry and also people who they prosecute. And in fact, there's even a talk among um, the um, the the Minister of Interior to setting up a homosexual registry, just like Hungary sets up a um, of course a, a battalion for first. Uh, Jewish force laborers, they are thinking of essentially right. Right. sexual orientation, but of course the yeah. army absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, no, that's frightening. I mean, it really is. If you think about it, it it's a census. I mean, it's to keep track of people, right? Yes, and this is also another history of showing how the reg- homosexual registry, which we don't have a copy of anymore, we don't know what happened to it, had a life of its own, and each political regime could use it for very different purposes. So just going forward, you have the Aerocross regime, which is, of course, again, a very brief regime that never gets um, to enact um, laws that it it passes in terms of homosexuality, but it's actually in its new, become a new family law. It it makes Mm, male, female homosexuality a criminal act. And moreover, it actually punishes male homosexuality uh, when it's caught um, with castration. And it's just, you know, wow. it, yeah. it takes it to the extreme in terms of thinking about the biologization of, of citizenship, right? This idea that your um, essentially sexual, um, your sexual act is, is somehow is a, a reflection of your biological health, which is in turn a reflection of the nation's health. Yeah. Um, and so it, 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 it truly wants to eradicate um, um, homosexuality from the you know, future of, of Hungarian state, which yeah. never becomes, of course, a reality. I, I, I think you do a great job, Anita, if I may say so, um, covering these kind of ideological overlaps um, through the chapters and, and in a, again, in a very surprising way. Um, one of my questions was, why did the decriminalization happen in 1961? So what was it that led to that point or what was it that led to a shift out of the 1950s? Because there was a, there was a great insistence on gender equality and no fault divorce and those sorts of things. So why was it in 1961 that this final um, decriminalization happened? And, and I guess the follow-up question to that is how complete was it? Right. So in terms of, you know, the, um, the communist, initial communist regime and the setup in, you know, 1948, um, they similarly to Bela Kun's, you know, 1919 Soviet, uh, Hungarian Soviet Republic, I argue, and it's documented, they truly believed they wanted to transform society, which is, I think we don't 
give them credit for that. We, we of course, it has it came with an incredibly um, bloody, um, you know, it led to incredibly bloody results, and and um, we have to understand and, and acknowledge that. But in terms of gender equality, it goes to say that the communists believe that um, by truly uh, enacting and legislating uh, gender equality, they would transform society and create communist citizens um, where, you know, marriage would wither away and they truly had these um, revolutionary ideas about um, how to transform society. Part of that was also this idea that homosexuality, not unlike um, in 1919 was, was, was something that was a, a condition and not an inherent, uh, an inherent condition, but they believed that uh, unlike in 1919, uh, that socially, uh, that homosexuality was now in, in, in many ways, the enemy of, of socialism, that it was, it was something that actually, um, they had to eradicate in order to be, to, to arrive to this socialist society. So they, uh, again, unlike any of the regimes prior, by now had the means, they had the, you know, they had the, the authority, they had the kind of bureaucracy with the registry, and they, they actually provided enough resources to, to the police that they could go after homosexuals in private as well as in public and, and um, basically give them um, Give, give, try them, and then they they um, they would hope that by punishing them, they would shed their so so to speak homosexual behaviors, right, and become a model right. citizen. And then in terms of oh, sorry, I just wanted to say that. Go ahead, please. And so it was it was they by by nineteen sixties it was it was clear that the kind of socialist society that they imagined was not going to happen. And this is, you know, in very much in line with the abandoning the true reforms of gender equality and mm, uh, right. the ideas that they initially harbored that by basically medicalizing and pathologizing homosexuality as an innate condition that cannot be changed, they also could abandon um, both gender equality and this full transformation of society, including the transformation of homosexuals into into model um, socialist citizens. Yeah, and and I guess from there, I'd like to ask about your big points because w- one of the recurring themes I find um, in your book is is about visibility and misremembrance or or a failure to remember um, the queer past, which which goes back a very long time. Um, in the records and in beyond that. So what what would you say for our readers and listeners would be the big takeaway points from your past to the present today? And and I am asking this as a veiled political question. <laughs> it's not veiled enough, but it, it is, um, of course, under the Orban regime and what has happened with their anti-gender politics and Central European University and such. So what what would you say would be some of the the lessons, if you will, or at least points for further consideration? Well, I would just stress that in terms of um, you know reinserting and studying the history, you you see that there was actually a really rich 
history that included coexistence or, uh, you know, large parts of uh, the past of different political regimes with, with um, queers. Um, but, and that becomes important, um, of course, in the post-89 and the post-2010 moment when, of course, Fidesz gains super majority. But in more, more generally, this idea that, of course, after 89, um, queerness explodes into the public, right? This idea that, um, particularly in East Central Europe, you know, the presence of pride, there's this idea that homosexuals arrive uh, with the help of, you know, basically capitalism on the wings of liberal democracy. So this idea that... Yeah, exactly. And you had democracies that queers could exist. Uh, which, of course, as you know, in my book, try to show, it's absolutely not true. And why it becomes important, however, is because particularly this very, um, I would say, dark, this um, communist period in terms of in terms of the history of homosexuality. That the fact that at the same time, even post decriminalization, you have an absolute pathologization of homosexuals. And at the same time, their utilization in the form of uh, as secret agents, um, it creates a, a scenario where um, you don't have an acknowledgement of um, the history of, of homosexuals and, and their life under communism, both because, for instance, the homosexual registry still doesn't exist and also um, in turn, the agents, the, the former homosexual agents, of course, they don't want to talk about their own past um, as a way of working for, for the Communist Party, right? So, yes, that's a great point. Yeah. There's collective silence around the existence of, of essentially the past, queer past, um, that transcends political, again, political regimes for different reasons, but in most. Um, but in terms of the communist theory, it's particularly important um, because, again, they, they exploited homosexuals and their homosexuality and also incredibly pathologized them. At the same time, I would say in the West, you already have, um, you know, the, the gay liberation movement. So you don't have that kind of um, visibility of, of homosexuals. And that allows Fides and, you know, conservative, um, these um, now increasingly um, religious, religiously based um, arguments to be made that that again queers arrived with uh, with the secular liberal uh, democracies and they would not be here otherwise. And if we just go back to this idea world, and this goes to say again with the reincarnation of the Horthy regimes and interwar again Poland and um, Hungary both as these Christian nations, then somehow queers would also disappear. Yeah. Which is um, just the, this argument that I, I like to, with, with historicizing their, the queer presence, like to refute. Yeah, that, that is a, a major contribution um, to East Central European history and historiography. Um, I think that point, um, certainly about thinking about the queer past not just as a way of bringing 1989 and liberal democracy, but there, there's an illiberal history to it um, as well. So if you could recommend 
maybe a couple of other books on this topic and talk a little bit about your current interests and research. I think our listeners here at New Books Network would love to hear about this. I mean, the kind of research that you've done, um, honestly, uh, in, in dealing with a registry that was, that was hidden that you can't find is, is just spectacular. So uh, maybe the, a couple of books you'd recommend and then what you're, what you're going to be working on with the project. Yeah. Um, so two or three books I recommend in terms of getting to know the region East Central Europe through the lens of sex, but also in, in doing so, realizing that it has a very particular um, space in the you know the politics and and just the history of sexualities in terms of not so much part of Western Europe, but also not so much um, perhaps. Um, part of the post-colonial world, so it's it's somewhere in between. Um, I would absolutely recommend Katerina Liskova's uh, recent book, Sexual Liberation: Socialist Trial, which truly shows um, this effort of sex uh, sexologists in um, Czech, the Czech Republic and then subsequently Czechoslovakia in using sex as a way to reform society and um, in many ways how, you know, say the pro-sex arrived to Eastern Europe much earlier um, than in, in to, to the West, even though it was subsequently rehearsed. Um, and then also another book that I, I absolutely love, and I think it's a great read, is Josie McLellan's Love in the Time of Communism. And that's a book on um, East um, Germany, and again, the state the state's use of, of, of sex to basically make their citizens at least tolerate um, state socialism, um, if, not, if not love it. And this is something that if people are interested in um, why, for instance, Eastern Europeans love being um, naked and just a much freer <laughs> go right. to lake and being nude and, and hence you know, coming to the U.S., running through difficulties, myself included. Right, in right. So he had a very interesting and uh, answer as of to why why that is um, the case. And then, lastly, I would um, um, probably uh, also recommend Agnieszka Kostianska's "Gender, Pleasure, and Violence" um, book that is basically on Poland and again Polish sexologist expertise um, and just the ways in which Poland, which has such an interesting history, of course, with, between the real religion, solidarity, um, and, and, the, and, the, and the growing human rights movement in the 80s, um, thinks through sex and a sexual expertise as a way to navigate these really difficult um, uh, coexistent times between religion and, and the Communist Party. So these would be my my three recommendations. And then in terms of my own work, um, I'm going to transition to, again, as I um, said earlier, to thinking about um, sex um, and sexuality in, in sports. And in particularly, um, I'm actually going to think about tennis as a... Wow, as a great. Um, and there are a number of ways in which um, I'm thinking about it, but it's still um, you know, an early project, but, but stay tuned. <laughs> Yeah, no, write, please write a memoir. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard. Like, I, I've been listening to this wonderful podcast called The End of Sport um, on, on Twitter, which has been focusing. It's a, it's a very left perspective. 
but a really interesting one on athletics. And I think people would be um, fascinated in your story. Um, but of course, it's hard to do between um, between the academic histories and the personal history, right? right. I yeah. think I have two books, but yes, I'm, I, I am thinking of, you know, I, I, um, I had the privilege of, of, of um, playing in a pretty high level and also seeing some very um, troubling and now, uh, you know, understandable sexual politics uh, in the locker rooms and on the court. So I think it's, yeah. it's definitely worthy stories to tell. I, I, I greatly appreciate um, you coming on the podcast today. Um, Professor Anita Kurame is our guest. Uh, she is the Associate Professor of History at Bryn Mawr College, um, who just got tenure. Congratulations. Um, and Professor Kurame is the author of a book we've been talking about today on new books in Eastern European studies. It is called Queer Budapest, 1873 to 1961, published with the University of Chicago Press in 2020. I'm Stephen Siegel, and I'm your host today. And thank you, Professor Kurame, for um, being our guest. Thank you for having me.